Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. Last episode, the first true Ashantehene, Ose Tutu, successfully established the Ashanti Empire by uniting the Ashanti tribes and city-states, while winning wars against the Dorma and Denchira, and establishing trade connections with the Dutch at Elmina Castle. However, after a significant period of time on the throne, Ose Tutu finally experienced his first defeat, getting assassinated during a failed river crossing during an invasion of the Achem Kingdom to the southeast. Now, the responsibility to govern the still-fledgling empire fell to Ose Tutu's grand-nephew, Opokuware. Season 3, Episode 6, Opokuware, the Empire Builder. In 1717, a deflated and thoroughly exhausted Ashanti army marched back into Ashanti territory after a long, hard series of campaigns against the Achem. They had not lost a battle per se, but what they had lost was arguably much more important. Despite their successes on the battlefield, an unexpected ambush while attempting to cross a river had led to the Ashantehene's death. This one ambush had derailed and wasted the efforts of an entire war, forcing the baffled Ashanti army to withdraw from Achem in defeat, despite experiencing mostly victories in the field. The only mood more palpable than these soldiers' disappointment was their anxiety. Not only would they have to carry back news of this awkward, anticlimactic defeat, but they also carried the weight of knowing that the coming news of the king's death could provoke something far worse. Ose Tutu had, by this point, ruled the city of Kumasi for more than two decades, and had been the king of all Ashantis for about 16 years. Imagining the Ashanti Empire without Ose Tutu at the helm was, for these men, literally an impossible task. And I'm not using literally figuratively. It was impossible to imagine, because before Ose Tutu, there had no been Ashanti Empire. There had only been one man who was capable of truly claiming to be the king of all Ashantis, and he was gone. What would happen now? Throughout history, so many empires have risen on the unity provided by a single charismatic leader, only to disintegrate into infighting immediately upon their demise. Think of someone like, say, Alexander the Great or Qin Shi Huang. These men each conquered impressive empires in just a couple decades, only for their empire to disintegrate in an equally hasty manner after their death. Would the burgeoning empire crumble with Ose Tutu's death? Would the Obosuas again divide the empire between each other? While well, Ose Tutu's united empire went down in history as a brief historical footnote, sandwiched between long periods of division? These were all genuine questions as the army returned to the capital of Kumasi. Upon entering the city, it was immediately apparent that any anxieties about the future of the empire that the soldiers may have been feeling were completely justified. You see, due to the unexpected nature of his death, Nobody among the city's elite seemed exactly sure of who would be the next Ashantehene. Ose Tutu had multiple nephews who were popular, capable, charismatic, and generally seen as valid contenders to be his successor. And the only thing worse than not having an heir is having too many. Additionally, while the unity of the most important Ashanti city-states had seemed tightly knit while Ose Tutu was in charge, this was potentially just a facade. With Ose Tutu dead, the matter of whether Ashanti power would return in Kumasi or be seized by another regional Ashanti king was an open question. While we don't know the details of how exactly fighting broke out, the question of who would become the next Ashantehene soon devolved into a bloody dispute. That returning, exhausted army was divided on who they would support. Various regional factions within the army each took different sides, supporting the candidate for the throne who they saw as either the most capable, or, in some cases, whoever offered them the best bribes. And, with the Ashanti consumed by infighting, other nearby kingdoms leaped at the opportunity to take advantage. The Achem, whose northern half of their kingdom had fallen to Ose Tutu's invasion, quickly recaptured their lost territories, and even began to make raids into Ashanti border towns, carrying away slaves and loot. The Wasa, 
formerly a subject and ally of the Ashanti, rose in revolt to re-establish their independence. And, like the Achem, they didn't limit themselves to retaking their old realms. Wasa armies began raiding not only Ashanti border towns, but fairly deep into Ashanti territory. But the Ashanti, with their state and army paralyzed by a rising civil war, could not mount a response. Even states who the Ashanti had enjoyed little contact with prior began taking advantage of their weakness. To the west, the Alwin, a group of Akan that had settled in the modern-day Ivory Coast, began their own deep incursions into Ashanti territory, passing through the territory of the Wasa, who were more than happy to allow the Alwin to attack their former overlord and enemy. The Alwin invaded the Ashanti from the west and encountered no resistance. They moved from town to town, stripping each stop on their journey of their valuables. As the Alwin continued to march further and further east, as no Ashanti armies came to confront them, they eventually even reached the undefended capital of Kumasi. Now, at this point, I'm sure the Alwin couldn't believe their luck. I mean, sure, they knew that the Ashanti were busy, but really, leaving the capital undefended was just something that they couldn't believe. As the Alwin army marched into Kumasi, they stripped the city bare of its many riches, and even dug up Ashanti graves to steal treasure that had been buried with their owner. This act was incredibly taboo, and, forgive the pun, a grave insult to the Ashanti and their ancestors. Now, stripping Kumasi of its valuables was one thing, but digging up the dead to do so was a whole different level of insulting. You see, the Akan religion strongly emphasizes a system of ancestor worship, so the exhumation of the ancestors in Kumasi was not only taboo, but completely sacrilegious. The citizens of Kumasi were outraged, but there was nothing they could do. They had no army to defend them. Finally, having stripped Kumasi of its valuables, the Alwin carried off the last treasure that Kumasi had to offer for them, its population. 20,000 of Kumasi's inhabitants were captured and carried back to the Alwin's homeland. There, they were enslaved, with some working in the Alwin gold mines, some of the women serving as concubines, while others were sold to European slave merchants on the coast. Even the old Ashanti ally of Aquamu was not immune from taking advantage of Ashanti weakness. Rather than raiding Ashanti settlements, the Aquamuhene proposed a more surreptitious way of taking advantage of the Ashanti civil war through gaining influence. A portion of the Aquamu military straight up invaded Ashanti territory in an effort to aid their favorite candidate in the Ashanti civil war. This blatant act of interference in Ashanti affairs, combined with the devastating Awen raid on Kumasi, convinced the Ashanti elites that the feuding over succession had to end no matter what if the empire was going to survive. Enter the main character of our episode, Opokuware. Who exactly Opokuware was prior to his succession to Ashantehene is kinda unclear. We know that he was somehow related to Osetutu, likely his grandnephew or nephew, a member of the roiling Oyoko tribe of Kumasi, and that in 1717, he was still pretty young. Estimates of his date of birth usually range from around 1699 to 1702, meaning that he was still a teenager, somewhere between 15 and 18, at the time of his ascension. However, beyond these details, Opoku's early life is poorly understood. Despite being the eventual successor to the throne, Opokuwari was initially not one of the main contenders for who would succeed Osetutu as Ashantehene. Remember, in the matrilineal Akan system of inheritance, it would be Osetutu's maternal nephew who would take over after his death. So, when various contenders for the stool took to war over the succession of the empire, the young Opokuwari was not among them. So, how did this random kid end up as the next king of Ashanti? Well, from the numerous analyses I've read, nobody really seems to be sure. The Ashanti recollection of their own history, as well as the writings of European observers, seem to agree that Opokuware did not actively lead a military faction in the dispute. 
but rather managed to convince or somehow bribe important figures in multiple factions of the dispute to back his candidacy for king. So, what's up with that? Why were these militant pretenders to the throne suddenly willing to switch to Opokawari's side just for a bit of cash? Well, in my view, I believe that Opokawari was a compromise candidate for the various contenders for kingship. After the Awan sack of Kumasi, the elites of the Ashanti Empire knew that the kingdom would have to unite to confront the many outside threats it faced before it was too late. However, it makes sense that none of the factions in the Civil War were willing to concede power to a rival, as this could lead to retribution in the future. I mean, we see it all the time. A civil war ends, and all the people who lost are executed. So, in order to end this conflict, the contenders for kingship would have to make a compromise. They'd pledge their allegiance to Apokuware, a presumably weak and inexperienced teenage ruler. The main evidence for this idea of Apokuware as a compromise, besides his lack of military involvement in the civil war and unusual generational succession, was the fact that his installment was, despite the circumstances, unusually peaceful and uncontested. Additionally, many of the leaders of the factions in this violent dispute that had raged for several years now were pardoned from punishment after peace was achieved, indicating that some kind of deal was reached behind the scenes. The heaps of money that he was likely handing out didn't hurt either. So, while the external threats remained a problem for the Ashanti, the issues of internal stability seemed to have been remarkably calmed down by Upokawari's ascension, at least for now. However, if the elites of the Ashanti had hoped that Opokaware would be a weak, easily controlled monarch, they would prove to be disappointed. In fact, Opokaware, as well as his advisors on the Kotoko, immediately set out trying to reverse the declining fortunes of the Ashanti Empire. Their first order of business was to deal with the Achim. Since Osetutu's death, the war with the Achim had been going terribly. They'd recaptured their entire northern half of their kingdom and were now raiding into Ashanti territory. While Apokuare recognized the eventual need to deal with this rising kingdom, for now he had bigger plantains to cook. So he agreed to a hasty peace, which recognized Achem's control over the northern half of their kingdom. Those bigger plantains to fry were Awen and Akwamu. Oh yeah, how did the Akwamu respond to Apokuare's ascension to the throne? Well, as you can expect, quite negatively. They had invested a large sum of both military capital and, well, capital capital, into influencing the civil war among the Ashanti, only to have their investment suddenly ripped out from under them. So, those Akomu armies that had invaded Ashanti to support their favorite candidate in the war? Well, now that the civil war was over, they were just invading armies, as the Akomu Hene basically declared war on the Ashanti. Despite this myriad of enemies, however, there was some reason for Opokoware to be optimistic about his prospects in the present wars. It meant that the armies of all factions involved were reunited. And, with these factions' armies combined, the Ashanti army was actually in pretty decent shape. The succession dispute had ultimately been short-lived, and while it had featured battles between Ashanti armies, none of them were major enough to inflict significant casualties. Even against foreign enemies, Ashanti defeats had mostly been minor on the military front, as, remember, most of the devastating attacks and raids occurred against unguarded civilian population centers. So, while the stability and wealth of the empire had been hit hard, the Ashanti war machine was mostly untouched and ready for reactivation. The first challenge that Opokuware turned his attention to was re-establishing Ashanti control over southwestern Ghana. If you'll remember back to last episode, the kingdom of Chuifo fell to an Ashanti invasion during the rule of Osetutu. Osetutu had aligned himself with the leader of the Wasa peoples, a rebellious subject of the Chuifo, and promised them that they would continue to rule as a vassal kingdom if they helped the Ashanti defeat Chuifo, a deal which the king of the Wasa accepted. Following Ashanti's success in the war, 
Osetutu kept his promise, and the region of southwest Ghana was ruled by the king of Wasa as an Ashanti vassal. However, as we remember, the Wasa then turned against their Ashanti overlords during the succession crisis, instead aligning themselves with the Awin, the seemingly ascending power in the region. So, Opokawari's first order of business was defeat the Awin, avenge the sack of Kumasi, and re-establish hegemony over the Wasa. And in 1720, he did exactly that, ordering his army to march directly into Wasa territory. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. When the Ashanti met the combined Wasa and Alwyn armies in battle, the result was a resounding and decisive victory for the Ashanti. Not only was the enemy army routed, but they were completely destroyed, giving the Ashanti free reign throughout Wasa and Alwyn territory. In Wasa, the old king fled into the countryside, attempting to raise forces to wage a guerrilla war against the Ashanti occupiers. In his place, Opokuwari appointed an Ashanti nobleman as governor of the newly conquered territories. And, given everything that had just happened, it's pretty easy to see why Opokuwari wouldn't want to appoint, say, a new local vassal king instead. Rather, Opokuwari created an entirely new position, one that would be directly accountable to the Ashantihene. This new position of governor, or Amanhene, was one of the most influential creations that Apokuwari would make in the Ashanti governmental system. Essentially, the Amanhene, or soon-to-be-multiple Amanhenes, under Apokuwari were almost kings in their own right, ruling authoritatively over their assigned jurisdiction. They maintained their own treasuries, from which they would pay taxes to the central Ashanti state, acted as judges in legal cases, and maintained their own local militias. However, unlike the old system of vassal kings, the Amanhene system ensured that these new subordinate kings had no organic base of support within their sphere of power, and that their interests would at least theoretically align with the goal of maintaining Ashanti hegemony in these conquests, rather than their own local interests. Additionally, every year, during a holiday celebrating the yam harvest, every Amanhene would be recalled to Kumasi, required to renew their oaths of loyalty. Now, as we'll see, this won't always be the case in practice, it's telling that Apokoware was so worried, rightfully as we'll see, about his governor's loyalty that he required them to come back and pledge loyalty every single year. But the creation of the system of Ashanti governors would forever alter the way that the Ashanti interacted with and governed subjugated peoples. So, remember the word Amanhene, because these regional governors are going to be really important throughout the remainder of this season. With their enemies in the southwest defeated, the Ashanti army went on their own spree of systematic violence throughout Wasa and Awin territories, whether it was stripping cities of valuables, seizing and burning villages, or enslaving massive populations of people, Ashanti vengeance on their enemies was absolutely ruthless. According to one British merchant present, the period immediately following the Ashanti's defeat of the Wasa and Awin was the most active period of slave trading yet seen on the Ghanaian coast, with tens of thousands of slaves including the Awin queen herself, being sent either to Ashanti gold mines or European slave ships. The territory of southwestern Ghana was placed under the rule of an Amanhene. Unlike the Awin and Wasa, however, remember that the Akumu had, until recently, been very close allies of the Ashanti. 
So while Apokoware did want to deal with the Akwamu and get their marauding armies out of Ashanti territory, he didn't want to crush them in a way that might ruin their old relationship forever. And while the Ashanti had been fighting their war in the southwest, an opportunity had begun to present itself in the east. The old Akwamuhene, the one who had ordered an army to intervene in the Ashanti civil war, had died. His two nephews couldn't agree on which of them should take the throne, so the Akwamu entered a succession crisis of their own. So, I assume after noting the irony of the whole situation, Opokuware decided that this was the perfect time to increase his influence in the Akwamu court. He ordered that the army provide support to one of the warring factions, and this time, the strategy of surreptitious support actually worked out. The side that Opokuware had supported ended up winning the succession dispute, and the Akwamu returned to not only being an Ashanti ally, but one that was indebted personally to the Ashanti Hene. And, just like that, Opokuware had repaired relations. In fact, relations between the two states were good enough that, later in his reign, the Ashantehane even scheduled a diplomatic visit to the Akwamu capital, confirming the restoration of good relations between the states. And, now that the Akwamu were an ally once again, the Ashanti military no longer had to be concerned about the presence of a hostile state on their eastern border. So, with his eastern flank secured and the last challenge of his reign met, Opokuwari could rest easy knowing that he had accomplished all of his goals and live out a peaceful reign right? Well, not exactly. You see, while the Ashanti had been dealing with that conflict in Akwamu, tensions had recently flared up all the way on the other side of the Ashanti Empire, not in the south, but this time in the north. A state which hasn't appeared in our narrative for quite a while, the oldest Akan state of Bonoman, was in a terminal state of decline. As mentioned in a previous episode, the establishment of a permanent large-scale trade with Europeans on the Ghanaian coast caused a major disruption to pre-existing trade routes, which traditionally flowed along a north-south axis. While this latitudinal trade route was strong, the Bono state was in perfect position to prosper due to its strategic location between the Akan states in the south and the empires of the Sahel in the north. But the arrival of Europeans and the establishment of a direct maritime trade route to the south weakened this traditional trade route by offering an alternative way to send gold north, as well as a cheaper source of finished goods. In addition to the arrival of Europeans, developments in the Sahel had also disrupted the traditional Sahelian trade routes. About a century prior, the greatest empire of the Sahel, the famous Songhai Empire, had collapsed due to civil war and Moroccan aggression. The Songhai's hegemony in the Sahel had ensured that the trade routes in the north had remained stable, safe, and profitable. But now that they had collapsed, the Sahel was unstable and deadly. Definitely not the ideal conditions for merchants running caravans of gold. But despite this trade route being weakened, the Sahelian trade still remained incredibly crucial to the economies of the kingdoms of Ghana, including the Ashanti. If Opokuware could find a way to remove the pesky Bono middleman from the Sahelian trade, he could export goods at a more demandable price and receive goods from the savannah of the north at a cheaper rate. Conquering the Bono state and gaining access to the Sahelian trade routes would also make the Ashanti less economically dependent on the ports in the south, crucial when you remember how close they had just come to losing control of the Wasa just a decade or so earlier. So, while the details are lost to us, we know that sometime in the 1620s or 30s, Opokuware declared war on the Bono state and scored a crushing victory over their army. Many Bono cities were ransacked, their inhabitants enslaved, and their treasuries seized. Understanding that he had been bested, the king of the Bono quickly surrendered. The terms of peace are, again, not precisely known. But in the years following, the Bonohane would be allowed to continue ruling his kingdom as a tightly controlled Ashanti vassal. His kingdom not only offered regular tribute payments, 
but also allowed the tax-free passage of Ashanti merchants through his territory, and even allowed the Ashanti army to recruit soldiers from his subjects. He also had to be supervised at all times from bureaucrats who reported directly back to Kumasi. In all but the most technical sense, the Bono state was now just another province of the Ashanti Empire. But Apokuware was still not satisfied with this already impressive expansion. To further expand their influence in the north, Opokuware later ordered another campaign of conquest, this time against the Guang kingdom of Gonja. The Gonja were the last independent kingdom of Guang, the original inhabitants of Ghana before the Akan migration. And for decades now, they had fought a series of destructive and indecisive wars against the kingdom of Dagbon to their north. After these multiple decades-long intermittent battles, the Gonja were eventually defeated and became subjugated to being a tributary state of the Dagomba. However, both sides had been severely weakened by these wars, a reality which Opokuare took great advantage of. In a desperate attempt to revive their floundering economy, the Gonja kingdom ordered an invasion of the Akwamu. Given that the Akwamu had just ended a crisis of their own, this seemed like a smart strategy. They were definitely vulnerable. That is, this would have been a good strategy if it weren't for Opokuware's recent repair of relations with the Akwamu. No, the Ashanti wouldn't just stand by idly and let their ally fall. In the fact that the Gonja kingdom occupied the other half of the Sahelian trade routes that the Ashanti had just integrated themselves into certainly didn't hurt in making the Ashanti want to invade. Understanding that the Dagomba were too weak to protest this invasion of their tributary, Opokuware quickly maneuvered his armies into Gonja territories. At first, he only encroached on the Gonja territories south of the Volta River, cautious of a potential Dagomba counterattack if they moved too far north. But by 1740, it was clear that this attack wasn't going to manifest. The southern Gonja territories had fallen under Ashanti sway, and a new Amanhene was appointed to rule this territory. Four years had passed, and there was no sign of Dagomba protest, so Opokuware was emboldened to push even further to the north, eventually swallowing the entirety of the former Gonja territory into his empire. Soon after that, his northern ambitions would reach their final apex. In 1744, Opokuware sent a message demanding the Dagomba surrender to become a tributary state of the Ashanti. Having already been bullied out of control over the Gonja, and still too weak to stand any chance in a direct war, the king of Dagbon reluctantly agreed. The Dagomba king would enjoy significantly more autonomy than, say, the Bonohene could dream of. The Ashanti, realistically, could not recruit in Dagomba lands, for example, and the king of Dagbon was free to make decisions without consulting any Ashanti bureaucrats. But importantly, Ashanti merchants were given free reign to move through Dagomba tax-free, securing complete and unconditional access to the Sahel for the Ashanti economy. From there, the Ashanti could export their gold at previously unthinkable profits now that these pesky northern middlemen had been dealt with. European and Sahelian merchants had to compete with each other's prices if they wanted to earn the Ashanti as customers. So, with higher profits and lower prices, the Ashanti Empire entered a brief economic golden age with Ashanti merchants, nobles, and even lay people enjoying previously unthinkable economic prosperity. Finally, Opokuware turned his attention to the last remaining Ashanti rival in the interior, the state that had killed his predecessor, Achem. The Ashanti army, bolstered by decades of successes and supported by a fresh flow of manpower and guns from the economically prosperous empire, made quick work of the Achem avenging the last major defeat that the Ashanti had experienced at their hands. With this victory, the last major Ashanti rival in interior Ghana had been defeated, and Amanhene was appointed to rule the region as governor, and the territory was incorporated into the Ashanti state. So, standing where we are in the late years of the 1740s, things seem like they're going great for the Ashanti. So far, Opokuwari's reign has been outstanding, frankly. 
He inherited a terrible situation, with the Ashanti on the brink of collapse, and managed to not only save the kingdom from crisis, but in fact doubled the territory's kingdoms throughout his reign. But in the waning years of his reign, the entire governmental structure that Apokuware had worked so hard to build would come crashing down in dramatic fashion. The two ears of state, the bureaucrats based in Kumasi and the Amanhene in the provinces, would eventually come to odds with each other, and ignite a conflict which would undo many of the successes of the last three decades. Join us next week as the Ashanti enter his second and even more devastating civil war. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by a monetary donation to our Patreon, which can be found on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. By giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This episode, like all of them, is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Raul Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Kevin Johnson, Sarah Mpenza, Sean Burke, and Morgan Blackmore, among others. Thank you for your support and your help in making sure that this show keeps happening.